All right, so we are at the end of our First Peter series. I know it may have seemed like a really long series since we started it a few weeks before Christmas, and then we took a break, and now we came back. But we are at the end, and I continue. I just have been blessed by this study. I've been blessed to um, study it to teach, but also blessed to hear it taught and, and to have really been challenged by this book. And I still believe this is such a relevant book for us today, and this series has been so relevant for us as a church As I've heard people talk, I think sometimes it is easy when we think about the audience of 1 Peter. And and we've talked about how probably when this was written, um, they may not have been experiencing that intense persecution, but they were ostracized. They were cut off from family. They were sometimes cut off in their business prospects. They were shunned by society. And we know that and we, we think about that and, and what this early church was facing. And then we also know that just not long after this letter was written, the church began to face extreme persecution, sometimes being imprisoned for their faith, sometimes being killed and killed brutally and publicly for their faith. And sometimes when we think of all of that and we think about us, we can just sort of brush this off as Um, You know, none of us has really ever faced anything. And we can have a tendency to to feel bad about even thinking about what we might be facing because we know that we are not facing anything as bad as what they were facing at the time that this letter was written. But I think if we think that way, we will miss the point of this for us. The truth is that while the very minor things that we face as Christ followers in our modern culture, these things may not be persecution per se, but the truth is that even though it is not persecution, we still can very easily cave under the pressure of even the very minor things that we face. And if the instruction of First Peter is true in cases of extreme persecution, then it is certainly true for the discomfort that we may face as a result of our Christianity today. And I think as we look at this book, it isn't about us focusing on how bad others may have it or how good we have it. I think where we should come as a church is simply about being honest with each other about the struggles that we do face today as we live out our faith in this modern culture. And we do. I talked to a young man the other day who said he struggles so hard to maintain sexual purity because he feels pressure in the world in which he lives. And people think he's crazy for not wanting to have sex before he's married. I talked to a man who said that people at his workplace look upon Christians as being not as um, uh, intellectually advanced as other people. I talked to a lady who said in her group of friends, the the beliefs that she has about certain things in culture, um, that, that they don't get how in the world she could think that way. And she struggles in those relationships. These are very real, although not persecution. They are real things that impact us in our faith. And we can cave under those things. And so I believe this book is really about us being honest about those things. And then coming together to help each of us maintain the high standard of Christian differentness to which we're called. And it is about us as a church family and as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is about us encouraging each other to stay the course. First Peter is here to help us stay different in the time that we live in. But also to prepare us for worse conditions that we may or our children may face in the future. Peter has called us to be radically different, 
to look differently, to act differently in the world because we follow God and because we follow his word. And today Peter closes this letter, this letter of 1 Peter with instructions on how we are to live differently in humility and how we are to live differently in resistance. And he gives us, of course, as he has done throughout this book, a really unique and fresh perspective on both of those things. So if you will stand with me as we read God's word, we are going to be in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter is towards the end of the Bible. It's after the book of Hebrews and James. If you get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you've gone too far. We are at the last chapter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Let's read the word of the Lord together. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So one of the things about how we, Ryan and I, do our preaching schedule is that it works out the way he preaches a few weeks and then I'm on. He preaches a few weeks and then I'm on. Which that means for me that, and because we are planned way out, I know what my passage is going to be. It gives me some time to mull over my passage. I don't really start preparing my sermon early. I usually do that the week before, but I just read it every day as part of my daily reading. And I found as I read this passage over three weeks that there is a lot in it. When you read something every day, new fresh things jump out every day. In fact, I, I took a picture of my Bible um, on this particular, the back half of this passage. There is lots of circles and lines and underlines. And I thought when I first read this, Ryan and I thought, do we do this in one week or should we split this in two weeks? And I thought, I'll have plenty of time to do this until I spent three weeks reading this passage over and over again. And there's so much in it. There is so much that is instructive. There is so much that is interesting. There is so much that is encouraging. There is so much that is challenging. So you guys get comfortable. You're going to be here a while. I'm just kidding. Um, But I want to talk about some of this stuff. We're going to hit the first part of this chapter five passage um, pretty briefly and then spend a little more time 
in the second half. But I think this passage overall says a lot about humility. And really, I think this whole book is about humility. It's about humility between us and other men and women. It's about humility between us and God. And I think it's fitting that as Peter closes this letter, that he highlights this idea of humility in these instructions that he gives us in chapter 5. The first thing that we see in this section about humility is this. He's in, he gives instruction to church leaders and to church shepherds. And he says, number one, lead people humbly. So in case the uh, church leaders of that time have been sitting there going, mm-hmm, you people need to be listening to Peter. Peter says, I got something for you too. And he challenges this. Now, this idea of elders does not necessarily mean old people. This isn't, isn't an elder in age. It signifies church leadership. If you read about church structure throughout the New Testament, uh, the letters of Paul and others, they talk often about how the church is structured with elders or shepherds or leaders. This is not so much about age. It's more about spiritual maturity. And it's about the idea that God did organize church structure in a way to have leaders, to have shepherds, to have shepherds of the flock. The flock would be your local church family. Um, And here he reminds... um, Shepherds, he reminds the elders, he reminds the church leaders to be shepherds. To, and think shepherds and sheep. He, he reminds them to lead the flock, to guide the flock, to protect the flock. Uh, I read in my daily proverb yesterday, this reminder, it said in Proverbs 27 from yesterday, it said, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. This is what we are called to as your pastors and as your church leaders. And this is a humble calling. But it's not humble in some sweet little parish pastor kind of way. Not a little house on the prairie pastor kind of way. Not that there's anything wrong with that. This is a humility that basically says, God called you to this. Do it honorably. It is humility. And and really in this section... Peter speaking to, things, to two big areas that many pastors struggle with. And so, so it's humility as a pastor that keeps us from leaving the ministry the minute things get difficult. And trust me, that happens because you people can be difficult. <laughs> but it's also humility that keeps us from developing a hardness or a bitterness that creates this attitude that looks at our calling as a pastor as sort of a job that is our lot in life. It's what keeps us from getting lost in this idea. And we, I think every pastor, if they're honest, will say they've struggled with this at times. If I could just do something else, I would. And Peter says, don't exercise oversight under compulsion. Don't do it because you have to. Humility says, God has called me to this and I will do it. And I will do it willingly. The other struggle many pastors have, and another way that humility evidences itself in pastors and elders and shepherds and leaders of the church, is it keeps us from seeing or doing, I guess, seeing our ministry, seeing church leadership as some sort of ambition or as a means to some sort of power. And maybe some of you know pastors that have gotten sucked into a power trip or, or seeing um, their, their shepherding of a church as something um, that they want to achieve in order to have power, to, to gain um, influence or authority. Peter says, don't do this for shameful gain. 
Don't do this to be domineering in your leadership. There's a truth that being a pastor is not an easy calling. I think there is a spiritual component to being a pastor that maybe no one who's not a pastor can really understand. Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us, those of us who are in leadership, that we will be called to give an account for each of you. We are called before God to give an account to how we exercised our calling as pastors. And humility for a church leader or a church shepherd sees the weight of that calling and then submits themselves to God for guidance, but also for encouragement and reward. Peter says here, follow him now. We carry out our calling with honor and he will reward us. So the reality is that you guys are off the hook. We don't need a pastor appreciation month. In fact, oftentimes we get sucked into feeling like our worth is based solely on your appreciation of us. And this is a reminder that it's really God as a pastor or a shepherd that we look to for that. Now, that being said, God often encourages us through you. So don't quit doing that. But, but you are not the source of our ultimate encouragement as pastors. And Peter reminds us of that here. Then he goes from challenging us to challenging you. Number two, follow your spiritual leaders humbly. So it's interesting in this whole letter, he's been hitting hard a call to submission in our relationships. He, he calls us to submit to each other. He calls us to submit to government officials and institutions, to submit to our bosses. And then he calls us to mutual submission in our spa, with our spouses in our marital relationships. But it's almost like right here, just in case that everybody didn't realize that when he says, um, uh, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, in case you forgot that that also means how you relate to your church leaders or your church shepherds, he instructs them, be subject to your elders. And again, this is not an age elders. This is a church leader eldership. Peter quotes from Proverbs three thirty four here. God will oppose those who are prideful, but will be gracious with those who are humble. And humility for both leaders and for followers would have been an idea, as we've said over and over in this series, would have been an idea that seemed very weak in the culture of this day. But by this point, we know that this culture that we live in is not our home. Peter said back in 2.11, we can humble ourselves before God and we can humble ourselves before others because we are only sojourners and exiles here. This is not our home. And our calling to humility in the face of a world that seeks its own is a foundational part of what it means for us to be different. That's the first part of chapter 5, and now we get to the part that made my Bible look like a road map. Starting in verse 6, Peter gives this final conclusive charge and reminder to us, as his reader, to his readers in that day, but to us as his readers today. Number 3, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There is so much in this section, and I've just been thinking about this section and in both the context of this whole letter of First Peter, but also in the context of God's word as a whole. And I'm thinking, what does it really mean to humble ourselves before God? Why does he say, humble yourself before God, and then 
jump right into talking about anxiety and then jump right into talking about the threat of an enemy intent on devouring us. What is Peter trying to do at the end of this letter? The most important part, the part that they might remember more than anything else. What's he really trying to tell us here? It says, humble yourselves, therefore. And as we have said, Ryan said this just last week or a couple weeks ago, therefores are always there for a reason. And I believe that this, therefore, is to refer us back to the whole of 1 Peter. Right before this, he gives this last brief reminder that we are to be subject to one another, that God opposes, opposes the proud, that he gives grace to the humble. And then he moves into this big overarching conclusion to this letter. Essentially, what he's saying is because of everything that I have written to you about, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And I think humbling ourselves before God is is a different sort of humility than humbling ourselves before other humans. I think sometimes when we think of a humble person, we think of um, that person who's so gentle and they're sort of winsome and they're gracious and they're self-effacing. Someone much like me. I totally am kidding. And my wife is like, what? No, not me at all. But that's kind of what we think of. We all know somebody. We think they're so humble. That person is so humble. And and it's a gentleness and a winsomeness and a graciousness and a self-effacing nature. But when we look back on 1 Peter, all that he has told us, he is saying something here much stronger than that when he says to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is talking here about full repentance and full surrender to God. He is talking about the humility of acknowledging our sin, of turning from our sin, of realizing that we have nothing on our own and that we cannot trust ourselves and ultimately turning from our sin, from ourself, and turning to God in a saving faith and in the day-to-day of our lives. We humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God when we repent and when we surrender for salvation. And we should all, if we say we follow Christ, have a moment when we realize that. But then day by day, we also humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God when we take up daily our cross, as Jesus told us to do. When we daily surrender our human desires, and our human nature under the mighty hand of God. The different lives that we are called to to lead, this book, this letter that we've just read, these things are impossible for us, and they are totally against human nature. And they are totally against the way culture tries to lead us or direct us. And in the day-to-day, we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand when we take a deep breath. And sometimes I think it is a deep breath mixed with fear and trust. But we take that deep breath and we say, Okay, God, I will do as you say. But when we turn that way, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in that way, we are not turning away to something that leads to misery. We are turning towards something, and it says right here, that leads to exaltation, that leads to hope, that leads to perfect love. Peter says right there, in the proper time, he will exalt you. You don't have to do that yourself. You don't have 
to strive so hard for that. You don't have to expect that of other people. You don't have to follow the world for that. He will do it. He will exalt you in the proper time. And I believe it's so true, and I think Peter understands that there is a, there is a fear, and he calls us often to do things are, that are scary. And he calls us often to do things that we don't know what the outcome will be, and sometimes it looks hopeless. And sometimes when he calls us to do something, we can contemplate, because of the weight of what he's telling us to do, we can contemplate jumping ship, jumping the ship of God's way, for the ship of self-actualization. And Peter says here, when that happens, just give God your fears. Cast your anxieties on him. And not so that he can jump right out and tell you, you shouldn't be afraid. It's not so he can ignore them. It's not so he can chastise you for being afraid. It is so that he can cover them. It is like we sung about, it is so that he can hold you fast. He says, bring all of that to me, not because you're afraid of me, but he says, bring all of that to me because I care for you. Peter says, he cares for you. And I love this reality that Peter gives us this very hard passage. He gives us this challenging letter Last week, we noted that he began a difficult passage with the word beloved. And again, he's given us a strong challenge. And then he gives us a reminder that we are God's beloved. That is such an intimate, beautiful word. We are not just tolerated. We're certainly not ignored. We are beloved and he cares for us. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand because he cares for you. I challenge you to do it. Maybe for some of you, you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand for the first time today. But for some of you, it may be the hundredth time as you come to him and say, God, here is my cross. I want to carry this and follow you today. And then Peter jumps right from that into this reminder that there is an enemy prowling around just waiting to attack us. This symbol would have been very real for Peter's readers. And in a few years, Christians might face death in arenas with lions. I think we might miss a little of the magnitude of this imagery because we live in this safe little world. But I thought about this as I went running the other morning. Um, it was early. The sun was not up yet. It was dark. And we have had numerous coyote sightings in our neighborhood, um, in, in our area lately. In fact, I have a picture here for you. This is just two houses from me. Two coyotes in the street. Now, I have to tell you, I was alert on that run. I was imagining these vicious animals. And don't tell me that they don't, they're not going to bother a human or they're more scared of you than you are of them. I don't care about any of that. I was imagining these vicious animals just crouching in the shadows, ready to jump out, to pounce and attack. I was also looking for rats because we have those in our neighborhood. And I was also real sensitive about cracks in the sidewalk because when it's dark, I can't see that far down and I often trip. So I'm generally skittish anyway on dark runs. But I was very alert more than ever because of all these sightings that have been happening in my neighborhood. And the funny thing was, I thought this was funny. I made it home safely, no attacks. 
I'm cooling off in front of my house. It's still dark. I see a car coming up the street. The interior light is on. I see the guy. He's looking at me. I'm thinking he may have something he needs. And so I sort of lean into him. And my Wall Street Journal is flung directly at my head. I had to lunge out of the way. Slow motion. And if I had hair, it would have fluttered in the backdraft. Literally, I did feel it go by my head and I had to laugh that I was so worried that whole run about being attacked by wolves and I almost was attacked by my Wall Street Journal thrower. Anyway, that's a total digression from this story because this image is very powerful. This image of a a lion waiting to devour us and it should be very scary for us too because the devil is looking to take you out. He's looking to take me out. He is looking to take the body of Christ out. He is not just looking to hurt us or to disable us. It says here that he is looking to devour us. Devour. Consume. And Peter says to resist him. Resist him. Now here in San Francisco, we like to passionately resist a lot of things. We like to resist authority. We like to resist politicians we disagree with. We like to resist landfill waste. We like to resist non-cage-free chickens. We like to resist a lot of things. And those things may or may not be good or bad, but they get so much focus. But Peter says here, resist the devil. Resist him by being firm in your faith. And resist him by remembering that as a Christ follower, you are no longer an island on your own. You are part of a bigger brotherhood and a bigger sisterhood all over the world. You are not any longer your own. You are a functioning part of God's kingdom. And as a result, you do not struggle or suffer alone. This image of the lion, it struck me as I was reading this. I think sometimes we think about... When we think about the devil prowling around like a lion, if you're old like me, you may remember um, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom. Did anyone ever watch that on Sunday nights? So Marlon Perkins would be in the background talking all quiet, narrating this horrible scene of carnage that we were about to see. This gazelle wandered off from the other gazelles. He's eating and there's a lion crouching around and we're all just watching it, waiting for the lion to pounce on this unassuming gazelle. Now, I think sometimes we think of that and we think, ooh, I, I, the devil's going to catch me off guard and he's going to cause me to fall into some form of sinful behavior. And that's not an altogether wrong picture. But in the context of First Peter and this letter, all that we have seen in this study, I think Peter is talking about something different here. I think he is talking about God's people being devoured, being consumed by the culture around them. This whole letter is about Peter challenging the church to accept that they are no longer of this world, that they are different and challenging the church to not be afraid to show that they are different because in their difference is their testimony, is their witness to the gospel. Peter is concerned, and and I believe he gives this challenge here. He's concerned that the church will, because of the suffering, because of the rejection, because of the isolation, that they will simply be assimilated back into the culture from which they came. 
He is concerned here that the devil will devour people in such a way as to make them no longer different, no longer distinctive as followers of Christ. And when we no longer are different or distinctive from the the world around us, we lose our witness and we cannot carry out the purpose to which God has assigned for us his church. And I think this is happening here. Maybe it's in the West. Maybe it's because we've enjoyed so much freedom. It actually has positioned us to be more easily assumed back into culture. Maybe it's some of us are adopting culture, cultural ideas and norms for the first time. Maybe some of us are going back into what we came from. We still call ourselves Christians, but in, all, in many material ways, we live just like the culture. And I think this challenge from 1 Peter is for us to be vigilant, vigilant in our resisting the lure of the world. And as a pastor and as, as someone who has talked to lots of people and in a pastoral way, this, I see this today for us in several primary areas. I think many times that we, the body of Christ, we we have gotten into such a comfortableness with our faith in culture that we live a lot like the culture lives. We are prone, just like the culture, to finding our value and purpose in accomplishment. I think we often work just like the world works. We sort of put what God says about how we relate to each other on a shelf that doesn't apply to our jobs because that isn't how jobs and work works. Someone once told me, you can't really do that because the, this is all part of, of how you gain leverage, how you um, get stuff done, how you make deals, how you grow your business. We, 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 we don't take the mindset of what God tells us in here into the work world. I think we are prone to be as obsessed about money and material possessions as the world is to the point that we spend, we make our decisions much too heavily influenced by the financial ramifications of that decision. We also gossip. Have you been on social media? We seek revenge. We don't forgive. We hold grudges. We have worldly marriages that are based on cultural norms instead of based on God's godly counsel for marriage. We talk disrespectfully about our leaders. We support causes and ideals that go against God's word. We don't want to submit to anyone. And we're committed first and foremost to self-preservation. Not everyone, not all the time, but I see it. And I believe it's dangerous because it's a slow process. But I fear that we as Christians could very easily be assimilated back into the culture. Very slowly, and I think that's why it says he prowls around. It's not the real obvious thing we avoid. It's the thing that looks okay and looks normal. And so I challenge you, as God's people here in San Francisco, to be careful. Assess yourself. Does my Christianity impact the way that I talk? Does my Christianity impact the things I support? Does it impact what I watch? Does it impact the events I attend? Does it impact the way I spend my money? Does it impact the way that I work and carry out my job? Does it impact my relationships? Does it impact the way I express my sexuality? Because if we aren't thinking that way, you may be slowly being devoured. Peter says, resist. 
Maybe it's time to quit worrying about everything else that we all get in a tizzy about and focus on resisting the devil. James 4, 6 through 10. I'm, I'm studying James in my personal time. Let me tell you, if you want a book that is strong, spend some time studying James. But James 4, 6 through 10 says things in much the same language that Peter uses here, except I think it's stronger. I wrote on the side here, just when I was studying this, that in this section, I believe, is the language of repentance, the language of humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Um, and I, I do believe that. It's the language of repentance. It's the language of resistance. I want to read it. It'll be on the screen. This is um, James, which is the book right before First Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse um, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Again, do we really want to put ourselves in a position of being in opposition to God? I don't think so. He says to submit, give up your whole self, give up every human urge. And he says to resist the devil, not in a passive way. We cannot resist the devil passively. We are to resist him actively. And in order for us to resist him actively, we have to have a certain level of self-awareness about the areas where he is going to get you. If you don't care at all about money, he's probably not going to tempt you with it. But if you do care about money, that may be where he gets you. I know for me, there are so many areas, so many areas, but a a couple that just jumped out at me as I was thinking about this. I struggle, I seek to be accepted and to be affirmed. I desire accomplishment. As I get into my 50s, I have this great sense of, have I accomplished anything? It could very easily distract me. I struggle with pride. I desire financial security. You know what? He's going to prowl around and he is going to lure me with what my flesh desires most. And he will do the same thing for you. You need to know where your blind spots are in order to resist. And I love how James says this. He says to resist. And then he essentially says this. The devil talks a big game. And if you are alone, you are an easy target for him. But you submitted and surrendered to God and connected to other believers in community. You at that place are a force to be reckoned with. And Satan is a coward. He will run from God in you. He will flee. Draw near to God, James says. Seek him in his word and in prayer and community. Draw near to God And it doesn't say God will run away or God will push back or God will not answer his phone or he'll ignore your email. It says he will draw near to you. There's a mutual action. You draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Drawing near to God is how, when we go back to what Peter said, it's how we grow a firmer faith, which is how Peter said we resist the devil. James says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And then he calls us double-minded. And I think most of us would have to admit at some level, we are all double-minded. You know what that means? We have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. And if we are not diligent to resist, 
it's very easy for the foot that is in God's kingdom to slowly go over to where we are really just in the world. And then we become no different from the world at all. Realize the wretchedness of your faith, uh, of your flesh. That's what he's talking about here. Humble yourselves before God. Let him do the exalting and he will. Going back to 1 Peter, Peter tells us how and why we do all of this. Peter says and reminds us that in this life, in the big scheme of things, everything we face is short term. Some of us may struggle for a little while here on earth, and we may live on this earth to see the end of our struggle. But some of us may struggle for the rest of our time on earth and not have a relief until we meet Jesus in heaven. But in both of those cases, your struggle is brief. And it's brief because on the other side of your struggle is eternity. On the other side of your struggle is a place and a reality where we realize that this is not our home in this short time that we are on this earth. For every person in this room at some place down the road, the God of the universe, Peter tells us, the God of the universe, the God of all grace, the God that has called you and given you a new life in him, the God that has made you part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that God will himself face to face not his agents, not his people, not his pastors, not his leaders. That God himself, he himself, he will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And that is worth hoping in. That picture, that bigger picture of the smallness and shortness of our reality is so easy to forget. I've been reading a devotional this year uh, by Paul David Tripp. And he calls this modern evangelical schizophrenia. He said this, It causes so much confusion, frustration, and discouragement. It leaves us with unrealistic expectations, naivete. It leaves us prone to temptation and regularly disappointed. It leads us to ask far too much from the people around us and to expect more than we should from the situations and locations in our lives. It makes us search over and over again for what we will not find and spend endless hours wondering why we haven't found it. It even results in some of us beginning to doubt the goodness of God. What is this schizophrenia, you ask? It is the fact that we declare that we believe in forever, yet we live as if this is all there is. I think that is so true for us. To live the different life that we are called to live is impossible if we do not focus on the shortness of our lives on earth in the big scheme of eternity. <coughs> it's impossible if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus. It says in Hebrews 12:1 that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. If we don't trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he cares for us, and that we will spend eternity at his feet. If we don't really live like we believe that there will be a point where we are with him forever and there are no more tears, there's no more hunger, 
There's no more thirst. There's no more hurt. There's no more striving. There's no more poverty. There's no more racism. There's no more abuse. There's no more sin. That is the hope for us in being different. And we are called to be different. But Peter reminds us, while we are called to be different, dominion belongs to him. To him be the dominion. To him be the sovereignty, the ultimate control. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.